Hello and welcome to the TNW podcast, the show in which we discuss the latest developments in the European technology ecosystem and feature occasional interviews with some of the most interesting people in the industry. My name is Andrei Degler. I am the head of media at TNW. And I'm Linnea Ogyan. I'm the senior editor here. Linnea, how's it going? Well, it's good, but we've been trying to get this particular episode off the ground for a couple of days now, so I'm very happy we're finally doing it. Yes, I'm very excited as well. Now is the time. If it doesn't work now, it's not going to work at all. So (laughs) let's get into it. In today's episode, we will discuss the AI Act, the leak of Mistral's surprisingly powerful large language model, European supercomputer chips, and uh, a few things in between. First, we want to start with a story that we did cover over the past week. Uh, Linnea, what did you choose to talk about? Well, so it's everyone's favorite topic, uh, European regulation. <laughs> Yay! But uh, it is quite essential. And I don't think we can say that we cover Europe in tech and not talk about the fact that just before the end of last week, so that would be on Friday, February the 2nd, ambassadors of the EU member states agreed to sign the EU AI Act. So what is the EU AI Act and why is it so significant? Well, it is essentially a world-first comprehensive rulebook for artificial intelligence and for the companies that build it and those who use it. And there have been significant fears. I wouldn't say that they are entirely unjustified, that the act would stifle innovation across the block. Specifically, France, Germany, and Italy were the last holdouts in approving the act. And the first two, uh, I would say, because they have their own very strong AI startup contenders in Mistral and Aleph Alpha. Mm -hmm. Paris and Berlin's main concerns here were that the act would have too many restrictions on foundation models, which is a general purpose AI technology that supports a diverse range of applications. Think the GPT models that power OpenAI's ChatGPT, for instance. And like you will discuss a little bit later on also with Mistral's LLMs. Yeah, there was a great discussion, right? Like uh, whether the focus on this regulation should be on the foundation models or on the actual applications, right? Yeah, it, the question was where they would be included in the risk categorization. Right. Um, and we will get to that in a little bit as well. Um, and Italy is just generally very pro-business. <laughs> so they just want, don't want to regulate business if, if it doesn't have to be regulated. Yes. Okay. Um, however, EU diplomacy prevailed. The commission announced a bunch of pro-innovation measures whatever that means, and said it would establish the EU Artificial Intelligence Office. Now, this is a body tasked entirely with enforcing the AI Act. Wow. Yeah, and it was originally intended to be something of its own agency, which I think is kind of cool. <laughs> if you have the EU Artificial Intelligence Office. Would you like to have Office. that on your CV? Um, <laughs> Let's just say I wouldn't be entirely opposed to it, potentially. I mean, but it it is still Brussels. But it was originally intended to be its own agency. But during the negotiations, it was cut down to be integrated into the commission, albeit with its own budget line. Okay, that's a lot of stuff to wrap your head around. So if you had to explain it like in plain English to a golden retriever, where did it all uh, land at the end of it? Well, if AI could help me talk to the golden retriever, I think that would be... Terrific use case for it. Um, But so the key aspects now of the AI Act, although we have mentioned this before briefly on the show, but it's that it categorizes different AI systems and uses of AI into various levels of risk. Mm -hmm. So the higher the risk, say those uses that could have an impact on someone's health, safety, fundamental rights, environment, democracy, rule of law, etc., they will suffer stricter regulations. 
Now, some systems such as biometric categorization and social scoring, facial image scraping from the internet, etc., will be banned entirely. Okay. Now, while there was some contention from member states about the use of facial recognition software, some wanted to use it, the main reservations were, as we said before, regarding foundation models. And according to a leaked version of the document from late January, they ended up in the third risk bucket of limited risk products. That's like the least uh, least risky, does it mean? No, there is also the general use, mm-hmm. which right. has the least regulation. But this includes requirements on things such as transparency of training. And of course, this implies a lot of compliance measures from companies working mm-hmm. with this, which is why they were opposed to any regulation and were more lobbying for a, a voluntary code of conduct. Okay. Um, but however, there is a subcategory that has been introduced with general purpose AI models with systematic risk, and they will need to comply with additional requirements. Okay. And why is this all such a big deal at all? So the EU is actually the first in the world to attempt to regulate artificial intelligence. The U.S. has opted for more voluntary codes of conduct, like the ones that we said (laughs) businesses in the EU were lobbying for. And while all AI companies in China have to comply with what is called the data security law from 2021, Mm -hmm. and the country has adopted certain guidelines for generative AI specifically in August last year, it still hasn't approved a comprehensive law for the tech. Okay, so we are the first. Yay! <laughs> and again, I just know how usually all the legislation in the European Union, European Commission works. So how long do we have to wait until something actually happens? And what will happen, if anything at all, right now? Yes, obviously it's not tomorrow. The European Parliament's Internal Market and Civil Liberties Committees will first adopt the AI rulebook on February 13th. Mm-hmm. And then this will then be followed by a plenary vote in Parliament provisionally scheduled for April 10th or 11th. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the formal adoption will then be complete with the endorsement at the ministerial level. After that, the AI Act will enter into force 20 days after publication in the official journal. The bans on the prohibited practices will then start applying after six months, whereas the obligations on AI models will start after one year. Mm -hmm. All the rest of the rules will kick in after two years. However, classification of AI systems that have to undergo third-party conformity assessment under EU rules, are you still with me? (laughs) As high risk, (laughs) they get three years to comply. And if they don't do that, then they are looking at fines of up to 6% of annual global turnover. Now, my question and the question that many other people are pondering is, Three years? (laughs) Uh, What will have happened in the field of AI in three years' time? Will this regulation still be applicable, etc.? What will have to be updated as we go? And this is something that I think no one really knows. No, not really. I mean, so, okay, so I see. So it's a phased rollout where we start to see the first things most probably early next year. I give, would say so, take. yes, give or take. So six months and then, there, but there are already plenty of work that will need to start happening now as these businesses prepare mm-hmm. to comply with the regulations, which obviously then also, and I, I would assume this is one of the main innovation arguments or the in- argument that it's hampering innovation is that you need to redirect funds 
towards compliance mm-hmm. rather exactly. than putting all your efforts into actually evolving the technology itself. Right. And uh, when is uh, this new AI, what is it called? AI office uh, being established? That is beyond my immediate knowledge, I have to say. I, I would imagine that it is taking place as we speak. Okay, great. Well, at least uh, at least uh, we should uh, try and interview whoever is going to be in charge of that uh, that part of oh. uh, regulation. Yes, we definitely should. I hope there will be a ribbon cutting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe we'll get ChatGPT to do that. Maybe a robot. Okay, but I will talk about robots later. But first, uh, uh, let's stay a little bit with AI. Okay, so just uh, uh, a tiny little bit more. And I wanted to highlight a story that we didn't cover uh, this week, just we didn't really have the capacity for, but it was a really interesting one that I uh, I was following with quite some interest. And it is that last Wednesday, uh, the CEO of Mistral AI, Arthur Mensch, uh, confirmed on Twitter, okay, X, uh, that one of uh, the company's models had been leaked. Online, uh, it was known under the name of MiQ170B. So why is it all a big deal at all and what had actually happened? Let's try to go through this chronologically just to understand the situation. So a few days prior to Mench's post, uh, someone uploaded a model labeled as MiQ170B on Hugging Face, which is basically a GitHub for AI models, uh, very simply speaking. So a link to that uh, posting on uh, Hugging Face was also posted on the infamous uh, online forum 4chan. And that's when the model got properly noticed uh, by a lot of uh, uh, people interested and enthusiastic about uh, large language models and uh, their training. When you say someone posted, is this with a username or is it yes, entirely uh, yeah, anonymous? Yes, yeah, 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 so it had a, had a user, username. I think the username was MeetYouDev. So basically, we don't know who exactly that was. But uh, I, I will, uh, a mensch, uh, I think, thinks at least that he knows who that was. So I will I will get to this in, in a bit. But uh, it's someone. We don't have the name. They No one, ha- no one take, took the responsibility. So, uh, but very quickly after uh, this uh, posting, it quickly turned out that the new model uh, that was posted was extremely good. In fact, it had outdone every other LLM available for this type of testing except GPT-4. So, like, it's literally second best uh, widely available LLM in the world at this point. That is very impressive for a startup that is not even one year old. Exactly. At that point, we didn't know that it was uh, that it was uh, Mistral's uh, model. It was just something posted on uh, on the uh, on the Hugging Face platform, and of course, uh, the steer that it caused in the community was quite significant. And uh, it also, sh- and at that time, it also sort of became understood that most probably it is actually. Uh, the model by uh, Mistral, and it also showed that Mistral, which is just a startup based in Paris, one year old, got significant funding, but it has made a whole lot of progress over the past uh, few months. But you said that Mensch said that he he thinks he knows who the culprit is. Yeah. So that brings us to last Wednesday, and that is when Mensch posted on X confirming that the model was indeed from Mistral. And I will quote this tweet in full, uh, uh, also explaining whom he thinks uh, is to blame here. So uh, the quote begins, An over-enthusiastic employee of one of our early access customers leaked a quantized and watermarked version of an old model uh, we trained and distributed quite openly. 
To quickly start working with a few selected customers, we retrained this model from Llama 2 the minute we got access to our entire cluster. The pre-training finished on the day of Mistral 7b release. We've made good progress here, stay tuned. The code ends. <laughs> so, if you try to translate uh, what Mench said here into Mistral's actual product lineup and roadmap, it seems likely that the leaked model is at least a version of uh, what's known as Mistral Medium, which is currently the largest model the company has released, and it's the largest model that is uh, being offered uh, for customers in the cloud. So, uh, in which case, uh, the good progress that uh, Mensch mentions uh, they made is most likely a reference to Mistral Large, which is a model that's expected soon. We don't know how many parameters it will include. I don't think they. I don't think they ever. Uh, they ever mentioned that number, and it is quite likely, however, that Mistral Large in this case will in fact outperform uh, GPT-4 at least in the state that it is in right now. That will be incredibly impressive, uh, especially since uh, OpenAI has trained GPT-4 on the Microsoft Eagle Azure, which is the third fastest supercomputer, essentially, in the world, uh, barring some Chinese supercomputers mm -hmm. that, are, that are not disclosing how fast they are. But I have two questions. One is, where was Mistral Small? Because <laughs> Mistral... Oh, it was there, the it was first, there. It, so the 7B yeah. is actually there, Mistral Small. As far as I remember, there was Mistral, there was Mistral Tiny, there's Mistral oh, Small, and then there's Mistral Tiny. Medium. So, yeah. okay. so 7B is... Do we think, think 7B I is think, small? I think it's tiny. Or tiny. So I can't really say that for sure. I don't really... Uh, in my uh, research, I didn't, even, I didn't quite see how tiny, small, and medium, uh, what they have to do with 7B, but my understanding is that 7B is the open source model, right? Yes. And then tiny, small... It's the small, first one they released. Yeah, exactly. And tiny, small, and medium are the models that are offered to customers, ah. uh, uh, basically, that, that they're paid offering. So it's so it's hard to say which one of them is closer to 7B. I would expect it to be tiny, but it's really, it's really hard to say. So currently on their uh, API uh, pricing page, you have Mistral Tiny, Mistral small and mistral medium. That makes sense. And it's a very user-friendly uh, product. Oh, yeah, <laughs> very much. I mean, I'm, but, I, they, they, I, but I also think that they do know their audience very well. So that's, <laughs> you know, you know, they definitely know whom, whom it is for. But yeah, so Mistral Large is coming and Mr. Large is going to be really, really a significant uh, uh, breakthrough, it seems. Okay. Well, I look forward to, to hearing what it does. Um, but how likely do you think that it is that Mistral orchestrated this leak themselves? That's a really good question, and I would say it is. I would say it's quite likely, honestly. And uh, I mean, it's been discussed also elsewhere before. But the more I think about it, the more I just get to a conclusion that it's a reasonably easy thing to do, right? It is a totally harmless thing. So basically, no one, no one got hurt because because of uh, this entire uh, situation. But it has generated a whole lot of buzz around the company once again, and uh, a lot of excitement about the upcoming release of Mistral Large. So. I don't know. I would say the probability of it being an inside job, uh, if you will, is probably about 70 to 80 percent. What do you think? Well, I think that an over-enthusiastic employee of one of our early access customers sounds a little... I just don't know who would sort of dare to do that in today's employment 
situation within within the tech industry overall. But uh, what do I know? Yeah, no, that, that that's that, that's a good point as well. So I mean, but be it as it may. It definitely has achieved uh, achieved the goal. So there is a there is a whole lot of buzz around it, and uh, a lot of people are talking about what's indeed. going on. And also, a lot of people now understand how uh, powerful Mistral Medium is. Mm. A lot more, maybe they don't than uh, were exposed to it before. This is true. See, I I was not aware of how powerful it was, for example, until this conversation. And yeah. I'm I'm quite into the space. So, so here we go. So one one way or the other, kudos to Mistral, and we are going to watch this space and see what happens. Now, it is time for This Week We Learned, my favorite uh, segment uh, on the show. Uh, Linnea, what did you learn? Well, I learned that Europe is now on the path to having its own homegrown microprocessor. Great. We have we have our own great uh, LLM developer. Now we have also have a microprocessor. We're going to be uh, technologically sovereign, aren't we? Uh, well, let's hope that we don't fall as far behind as we have in other technological areas. Perhaps Europe has learned its Ever lesson. Ever We will see. <laughs> I believe in Brussels. Um, no, but seriously, I learned that there is a French startup called Cyperl that mm -hmm. is building what they call a high-performance computer microprocessor specifically for exascale supercomputers. And what's an exascale supercomputer? So an exascale supercomputer is unimaginably fast. It can perform one quintillion, that is one followed by 18 zeros, flops, or one exaflop. And flops are then the number of floating points, arithmetic calculations that the processor can perform within a second. So it sounds like a lot and it probably is a lot. It is, yes, it is a lot. It is the fastest potential computing system that you can imagine. And there's only, currently there's only one exascale computer in the world and it's the Frontier uh, computer at mm -hmm. the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in, in the US, in Tennessee. But I digress. So there's this French startup called Cyperl that is building its uh, first chip for exascale supercomputers. And they have raised 110.5 million so far euros, um, including from uh, UK chip designer Arm mm -hmm. and the ATOS Group and the European Investment Bank and the French state. And they employ 150 people currently in France and Spain. But Cyperl's chip is called Rea1, and it uses the ARM Neoverse V1 platform. Now, it's named after Rhea, who is a goddess from ancient Greek religion and mythology. She is the titaness daughter of Earth goddess Gaia and the sky god Uranos. And she's the mother of five of the Olympians, including Zeus, as well as Hades, god of the underworld. That's a good name for the chip. I think it's pretty, especially being European, like, I, I'm... I think it's kind of cool. But moving to a different mythological uh, school, Cyprus's first customer is Jupiter. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Jupiter is Europe's first exascale supercomputer, and it will come online in Germany later this year. All right. And the Jupiter system will also feature nearly 24,000 of NVIDIA's monster AI combined CPU and GPU superchip, the Grace Hopper. The intention is that RIA-1 will also go into the EU's second exascale supercomputer, the Jules Verne, which should start running in France in 2025. Wow. So basically, about uh, two years from now, we're going to have two exascale supercomputers uh, in Europe, at least two? Actually, we will have from more. Uh, oh. Because 
Well, in continental Europe, yes, two. And then in the UK, they're also building an exascale supercomputer in Edinburgh. And a, just a couple of years later, in 2027, at the latest, we will also have a third one in Stuttgart in Germany as well. Wow, that's a... That's really nice. That that's good to know, and uh, so mo- so it seems like uh, these uh, startups, Hyperol, they are going to have more customers in the coming years. Yes, uh, I believe so, and they were founded only in 2019. So this is an example of this is actually a, an example of a European strategy with the Euro HPC joint mm-hmm. undertaking, which is a collaboration between. The European Union, 34 member states, so more, not 34 member states, obviously, but 34 (laughs) European states, which is more than the EU member states, uh, and private actors as well to uh, build a supercomputer excellence in Europe. And for that, they also decided that it's time for Europe to design its own chip. So this startup, basically, no one ever thought would have existed Mm -hmm. more than four years ago. Um, so it's an it's an interesting trajectory. Yeah, there we go. Great thing to know. What did you learn this week, Andy? Okay, so I learned another interesting thing. I mean, as usual, it's a bit a uh, bit more goofy, but uh, still interesting. So I know that there is now a robot uh, that can uh, read a Braille text twice as fast and about as accurately as a human. Uh, to be precise, it can read 315 words per minute with an accuracy of uh, 87%. I've seen it do it. It moves incredibly fast. Yeah, it's really yeah, it's really an interesting thing. I'm going to link a video in the show notes of uh, uh, this uh, robot just uh, reading from a uh, normal Braille uh, reader. And it goes, I think it's quicker than I read the normal texts. What's the what's normal human reading speed? I don't think it's uh, 315 uh, words per minute. I think it's less. I think it's highly individual. My brother prides himself on being a very fast reader. Okay, I've got I've got the average speed now. So average reader can read at uh, 238 words per minute. So this is significantly more than an average non-Braille reader. So this seems to be a significant breakthrough, of course, uh, for tactile sensing system development. Although it has very few real-life applications, we don't necessarily uh, need uh, robots reading Braille. But uh, this uh, kind of task apparently serves as a great test of how close a robotic system can come towards human-like sensing. And remember what we talked about a couple of shows ago about the mind being embodied in the senses and what that means for actually developing human-like artificial intelligence. So um, this could be turn out to be a non-insignificant discovery on the path towards ADI as well. No, no, absolutely. And I mean, there are there are numerous applications of these type of uh, high uh, high sensing uh, surfaces, for example, and uh, machines is just not uh, not going to be particularly braille reading. Because the end goal here, of course, is to develop hardware and software that could allow a robot, for example, to perform some very delicate tasks that would require a lot of adjustments based on sensor data. For example, I think it is still a very hard task to get a robot to pick up a very thin and fragile glass from a table and move it to another surface because it requires so many fine adjustments uh, on the go and such a fine control of the movements and understanding of the softness on the surface uh, that uh, the robot uh, has uh, uh, in its sort of uh, tactile uh, uh, actuators. Uh, that uh, this uh, this type of research is definitely uh, going to add uh, to uh, to that segment uh, of of robotics. 
So now it seems like we are one step closer to that, which is great for the field of robotics in general, but also I think for assistive tech like uh, smart prosthetics, for example, and uh, and such, because ah, this is uh, one course. very important uh, uh, important arm of this of this research. That's a wonderful application. So, on this uh, optimistic and positive note, I think this is all we have time for in this episode of the TNW podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you like our show, please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on social media. Just search for The Next Web and you will find us pretty much everywhere. Our music and sound engineering is done by SoundPulse. Feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at podcast at thenextweb.com. I am Andre Degler. I'm Linnea Algen. Have a good week, everyone, and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.